Good morning, friends. Oh, man, that is good coffee. Loving that. Hey, uh, I want to add my shout-out to the moms. Go moms. Love that you are here. We celebrate you and online moms. My mom is probably online this morning. Hi, mom. Love you. Um, gosh, I, I want to I wanna give another shout-out, too. Um, you know, in, in May, customarily around our country, we acknowledge our Asian American and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters. And I came across a stat uh, this last week. There's a study that was just done. It says that a significant majority of Asian Americans feel like they don't belong in this country. Uh, and uh, other groups as well, there are similar stats for Latino Americans, African Americans, but especially Asian Americans, the sense of being a perpetual foreigner. And um, I was just really struck by that. And, and I just wanted to say this morning, you do belong. In, in the U.S., but more so in Christ's church, uh, one of the things that, that the gospel tells us is that even in the midst of a world that loves to divide us by race, uh, that Christ's cross brings us together. As it says in Ephesians, that the work that Jesus did tears down the wall that separates us and it puts to death the hostility the anger that it feels like we live with so much in our society, that Jesus has put that to death on the cross. And it's just one more sign of a God that is so good that he loves his children this way. That the gospel, it it reconciles us to God and it also reconciles us to each other. And that's such a blessing. God's desire is not for us to be a siloed people, but one that reflects all. All different races, all different classes, uh, ages, married and single, all of it, all of his children. So um, we just, we want to call attention to that this morning and just rejoice in that today too. So uh, that relates in some ways to what we're talking about today too. The series that we're in is Rebooting Your Faith. And in this, we're looking at some core practices that are really fundamental to what it means to live a Christ-directed life, to live as followers of Jesus. So for those who are Christians, this is, it's kind of a reminder, it's kind of a, a chance to self-examine and to recalibrate and say, okay, where am I on these things? And for those who are examining the faith or newer to the faith, it's just a good picture of this is what Christian life looks like. This is what it is that Christians do. And today we're looking specifically at the practice of fellowship. Uh, which is, it's a word we really never use unless it's in a church context or a Lord of the Rings context. It's the only time that fellowship tends to come up as a word. But uh, it's a New Testament word, and it refers to the special bond that exists between people in a spiritual community. And friends, this is something the New Testament is adamant about, that you and I are made for spiritual community. There's something essential about us having community on many levels, but spiritual in particular. This is something that we are wired for and that we deeply need. And just to kind of differentiate a little bit, I mean, we're able to have, have, and we need to have significant relationships with those who are outside the church, with people who aren't necessarily uh, Christians or aren't necessarily religious people. We need those. But there's an added dimension. There's something that happens when you are in relationship significantly with somebody that that shares that bond of carrying around with them the Holy Spirit. 
Something that happens that can't happen in other relationships when you are face to face and soul to soul with another person who calls Jesus Lord, who worships him, who is seeking to obey him, is seeking to grow into his likeness. There's something there that is deeply needed. You and I are made for this, for spiritual community. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but a couple of weeks ago, the Surgeon General of the United States released a report on loneliness. Did you see this? Really fascinating. Uh, it was a report on loneliness and isolation. And in it, he called this an epidemic and a public health crisis, right? It's almost the exact same language that was used during the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, he said, this is a public health crisis. And, and I mean, to tell you the truth, just reading the headlines, it, it felt kind of dramatic. You know, it felt like, it's kind of being cute and calling attention to a problem by using language that's a little bit big. But when you get into the actual report, which I did because I'm nerdy, um, it, it's, it's really kind of serious. And he talks about how isolation and loneliness, it increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, and anxiety. People who are not in significant relationships with others increase their odds of dying prematurely by 45%. It literally shortens your life to not be in community. Uh, This was the analogy that he used. He said, when you look at the different things that shorten one's life, being isolated is the equivalent, health-wise, of smoking 14 cigarettes per day. That's how much it actually decreases your lifespan by and, uh, and, and it was interesting. I would suggest that one aspect of this, one reason this is becoming a public health crisis for us, is the lack of spiritual community, the lack of fellowship. As that dimension of what it means to be connected to others diminishes in our society, this is just one way we're feeling the effects of it, is in terms of health. And interestingly, the report, one of the remedies they recommended was he said, join a church. Join a church. You will be healthier. You will live longer if you join a church. That is, that is like statistically true. Um, you know, related to this in some ways, uh, you know, we're, we're at a place now where 20% of adults in America suffer from mental illness of some kind. And, and this too, the dramatic increase we've seen in this, I would suggest to you, is in part due to the decrease in spiritual community that we as a society are experiencing. And I think this is one of those areas where you've kind of just got to appreciate God's wisdom in in commanding us to be in spiritual community with one another and leading us into fellowship, right? One of the first things the scripture says about humanity is it's not not good for people to be alone. And that's not just a statement about marriage, that's a statement about what it means to be human. Now, I, I know at, at some level, we know this. But at the same time, we, we struggle. It takes effort uh, to, to be in community with others. It takes effort. And, uh, you know, we're busy, we're tired. It's easier to stay home and watch Netflix than it is to be part of a small group. And so we, even though we know, we struggle. Uh, it's It's... You know, when you're in community, you have to listen to other people. It's easier to just blast out your views on social media and let them rattle around out there. 
much easier than being face-to-face with real human beings, right? If you are in community with others, you will get hurt. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's easier just to withdraw. But friends, when we do, we do so to our own detriment. Our souls grow smaller, we're diminished as people, and we don't experience the fullness that God has for us as we do when we are in fellowship. We're made for this. We're made for spiritual community. So here's the question that we want to bring to the text today, and that's how do we live into this well? If we are made for this, if it's something that God invites us into and provides for us, how do we do this fellowship thing well? And we're going to look at one picture of this in Acts chapter 4. Uh, four marks of fellowship there that we, we would strive to embody. That as we live into these, we flourish more and more as a spiritual community. So let's pray, and we'll look at the scripture together. Lord God, we come to you this morning acknowledging that there is a part of us that longs for deep connection. There is a part of us that longs to connect with others on so many levels, spiritual among them. We know that we need this. And God, at the same time, we acknowledge for so many of us, uh, we carry wounds from others that we've incurred in the church. Uh, We carry hesitations. Uh, We acknowledge sometimes we're just tired, we're just busy, we're chasing kids around. Uh, God, we acknowledge the difficulty in this too. But Lord, we... We want what you want for us. We believe that your way is the best way. So God, increase our faith and teach us this morning how to follow Jesus in this important area. Uh, We pray for this. We ask you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, This is Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, this, this is a picture, uh, one of the earliest pictures of, of the church not long after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's, it's a great picture. I mean, we see this, and there's a little bit of longing that crops up in this, isn't there? It's, it's a terrific picture of what fellowship looks like. And uh, I, I want to point out four things in this text, four marks of this fellowship for us to pursue. And to the extent that we embody these... We, we really will deepen and thicken the fellowship that God, uh, God makes among us. So the first one of these is oneness. And again, verse 32, this is oneness. It says, all the believers were one in heart and in mind. So in this picture of fellowship, we see that there, is, there was a unity. There is a shared experience of being found by Jesus and experiencing salvation and a transformation in him. And this bound people together. And the practices of the early church reinforced this. 
Uh, right in, in the first church, and, and as we do here every week when they gathered, part of that was receiving communion together. And in that, there's this reminder of, of the one loaf. We all take from one loaf because we're all one body in Christ. We are fundamentally connected. And in baptism, part of, part of the words we say over, over baptism, over those waters, is a reminder that all of us are baptized into the same water. There's a sameness, there's a unity, there's a oneness that comes into our lives together by virtue of us being connected to Jesus. Uh, one of my, my favorite uh, spiritual writers of the 20th century, he says, it's kind of like, like mountains are all connected because their roots all go down into the same earth. We're connected because we are connected to Jesus. That connects us to one another as well. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, in the New Testament, if you've read very much the New Testament, you've probably seen this. But the New Testament is incredibly honest about what a struggle it was for early Christians to live into this, to continue to live into this oneness. There is a temptation for them, as there is for us, to divide into factions of different kinds, to retreat into their own tribes. So I don't know if you know this, but in almost every book in the New Testament, it talks about the challenge of being a multi-ethnic church. Almost every book addresses this. Uh, in particular, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, these are front and center. This was a struggle within these churches. Uh, similarly, dividing by class. Uh, that was a huge struggle for the early church as well. Uh, and, uh, James' letter talks about this. And in Corinth, Paul talks about this as well. Uh, see, do you need me to switch mics? Am I too echoing? Throw me a new one if, I, if, uh, if we need to. Or maybe it's not the mic. Maybe, maybe I'm just speaking with Darth Vader voice this morning, because I can do that. I can do that, too. Um, uh, bear with me, folks. The, the bugs will get worked out. But in, in Corinth, this is a huge thing, right? You had the rich hanging out with other rich people because uh, they wanted to enjoy rich people things. Uh, and the poor people in the church were kind of on their own. And Paul sees this. He has a fit. He's like, what you are doing is not church, this is not the oneness that Christ calls us to. Uh, when you read in 1 Timothy, is another great example of this. 1 Timothy, the church in Ephesus, you had this power struggle going on between men and women vying for control in the church in all different ways. This temptation to silo ourselves, to, to divide ourselves into factions was something that was real. Uh, and in other words, when you read the New Testament, you see there that God's people were a mess. And they had to work at this. They had to work at their oneness. Uh, can I tell you something you already know? We're still a mess. This is still something where, friends, if you and I do not intentionally live into the oneness that Christ has bought for us, then we lose it. Because in our natural self, there is this temptation to separate, to divide ourselves into tribes of different kinds. Here, here's a snapshot of what's been going on nationally in the church over the last five, six years. Uh, increasingly in the church in America, what you see is that churches that were a blend of those who are more conservative and those who are, who are more liberal in their politics are sorting into red churches and into blue churches because they'd rather not be together. 
You see on the national frame, you see multi-ethnic churches becoming less multi-ethnic and more mono-ethnic because people of color are often pulling out, saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to be in churches with people who are more like me. And who can blame them? It's easier. And at the same time, you have white people who are pulling out of multi-ethnic churches. We're saying, I'm tired of being stereotyped by the color of my skin. I'm done with this. And so they're going into spaces that are less multi-ethnic. We are losing our oneness because we don't recognize what Christ has done for us and the value of that. And is it more difficult? Of course. Of course it is. But it's more beautiful to live into what Christ is calling us to, into this picture of heaven that we get to begin to live into now. It is worth it, friends. And, you know, of course we don't say it like this, but the underlying narrative behind this, the separation is, you know, we say things like, well, I want to be with like-minded people. I want to be with other believers who get it. But what we mean is I want to be with people who think what I already think. And I'm not willing to put in the effort to be with those who don't. Listen, friends. If you are not willing to be in fellowship with people who are not like you, you do not yet understand what it means to be a Christian. You do not yet understand that the Jesus who would call both Matthew, right, a deeply hated Roman collaborator to be his disciple, and at the same time call Simon a zealot, right, who by definition believes that the way you honor God is by assassinating Roman collaborators, the Jesus who would call both of them together and say, okay, you are now brothers. And for the next three years, you're going to be roommates as well. That's the Jesus who calls you and I. It's the Jesus who says to his disciples, we have to go through Samaria, the most hated ethnic group within ancient Israel. He says, no, no, God is calling us there. This is the Jesus who calls women to be his disciples as well in a society that says that you shouldn't even read the Bible to women or teach the Bible to women because it would degrade the Bible. In that society, Jesus says, no, 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 I'm calling you to be my students, to apprentice yourself to me. I am going to teach you, and you are going to teach others. This is the Jesus who says, I really don't care how good you are at loving your friends. Everyone can love their friends. The measure of your heart is how well you can love your enemies. This is the Jesus who calls us to oneness. And friends, it is is worth it. We grow deeper in our life in him. We grow deeper in our fellowship with one another when we say yes to what he calls us to and being one with those around us. Uh, one, one, call it a hack maybe, one, one shortcut to increasing this kind of depth with others in our lives is this. Be in the habit of praying for one another. There is something about making yourself vulnerable, about opening yourself to others by saying, hey, will you pray for me? That like pours gasoline 
on the fuel of oneness that deepens our fellowship so quickly. And then you saying to another person, can I pray for you? Right? This is, to me, this is one of the best reasons to be in a small group is that every week I'm in a place where I can say to people, could you pray for me for this? And they do. And there is, there is a bond that happens between us in that. Be a person who is quick to pray for others and quick to say to others, I need you to pray for me. It builds our oneness as we grow together. That's one mark. The second mark uh, of fellowship, and we see it on display in the early church, is sharing. It's sharing. Verse 32. It says, No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Right? Rather than living selfishly, they adopted a posture of sharing, sometimes in ways that were unusually big and required sacrifice. Down to verse 34, it says, For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Right? There is an open-handedness there that said, What God has given me is not just mine. It's not my sole property to do what I want with. It is there for the benefit of other people too. So why would I hoard it? Right? And this was an attitude that permeated this fellowship, sharing with one another. Right? Thriving fellowship, it's always marked by people who recognize that what they have been given is a gift from God. And consequently... They share what they've been given. Uh, some, of my, some of my favorite moments in church life over the years here have revolved around this kind of sharing, right? And sometimes, uh, some, well, we've never had anybody, I don't think, like sell a piece of land or whatever, but, um, but kind of our closest equivalent that we've seen a number of times is people giving cards, which has been crazy to me. I remember the, the very first church that we planted, we were raising what felt like an enormous amount of money. At that time, it amounted to about uh, 25% of our annual budget, and we were raising that on top of our budget. And people, people were sacrificing in beautiful ways to make this happen. Remember this one college girl, uh, she sold her car so that she would have something to give. Right? She didn't have another car. She was like, oh, I, I can go bicycle for the next year. Right? And several other times we've had people who are in need of a car and somebody has just given them a car. It's, uh, I mean, it's huge when you see that. You can imagine the way that affects the whole when there's that level of sharing that happens. Um, you know, when, uh, uh, one way this happens that's, that's more regular, I guess you could say, is like meals or rides for people who just got out of the hospital or just had a baby or whatever. This actually came up just this week and um, you know, somebody went into the hospital and, and it was really cool to send out an email to a few people and get an instant response of like, oh yeah, I can give rides. I, I can give meals. Um, we have this benevolence fund uh, where if, if somebody has fallen on hard times in the church where we've got kind of a pot of money that we can say, okay, maybe we can help with that. And Man, I tell you, one of the coolest moments for me in the church is when we get to write one of those checks. It is beautiful to see that kind of sharing happen within the body. And 
sometimes more beautiful still, I'd say probably 50% of the time that we become aware of that kind of a need. And, you know, if we ask, hey, do you need some kind of help? About half the time, that person's small group has already covered it. We don't even end up touching the benevolence fund. Right? That's, that's what the scriptures are talking about here. About a pervasive attitude of sharing where we say as believers, what I have is not just the product of my hard work. It's the gift of a God who allowed me to do that hard work. And so it's, it's not mine to hoard. It's mine to care for my needs, but also to care for the needs of those around me. And friends, there is, there is a joy and a richness that happens in our fellowship uh, when more and more people embody that sort of a spirit. Um, you know, how do we grow in this? And we'll, we'll say more about this in a couple of weeks, actually. But kind of the shorthand is, is to be in the habit of giving with regularity and with generosity. In other words, to make a decision as a person or as a family unit, we're going to choose to live on a little less than we could live so that others can be benefited by what we receive as well. It's, it's one of those crazy stats, but there's been a number of studies on this. There's an interesting dynamic where as your income goes up and your lifestyle increases, your generosity goes down. Isn't that rough? I mean, it's so counterintuitive. You would think it would be the opposite. If, if I just had a little bit more, I would be that much more generous. But in reality, and multiple studies have borne this out over time, in reality, what most often happens is our income goes up a little bit, and we just become more addicted to those little gradual lifestyle increases that we're able to enjoy, and our generosity goes down. Uh, to counter that, to counter the idolatrous effect of money that Jesus talks about so much, we've got to be regular and generous in the way that we give. And as we do that, it, it not only enlarges our soul, but it does something in the fabric of a fellowship. It grows people together in ways that are unmatched outside of the body of Christ. Uh, that's second. Uh, sharing is the second mark. The third mark that we see in this scripture this morning is witness. It's witness. This is an interesting one. Verse 33. It says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Right? They continued to testify. They continued to bear witness to Jesus that he had died but was now alive and he was present by his spirit in the church. And friends, remember, uh, remember, this was incredibly costly for the early Christians. It, it inevitably meant social isolation. It typically meant a loss of income, right? Your business, your livelihood was going to be affected because fewer people were, want, were going to want to be in business with you. Sometimes it even meant jail or death. For the early church, it would have been much easier just to be silent. But they were not. They didn't stop bearing witness to Jesus. And, and they didn't cave into one of our chief temptations in our day uh, to just change Jesus' message so that it wouldn't result in persecution. Make it sound more like the culture around us and you know, that alleviates a lot of that tension. But they didn't do that. They did what Jesus did. 
They absorbed the hits. They took the shame. They endured it for this greater purpose, and they stayed true to Jesus and to his teachings. And it, it's interesting to me, too, and, and if we can go back to verse 33. It says, with great power, the apostles testified. This wasn't just the church limping through the persecution. God was moving in them in significant ways as they were faithful to bear witness to him. And I was thinking about this this week. How does, how does great power happen in our witness? And um, just to kind of synthesize some different pieces of the New Testament, I'd, I would sum it up like this. That power in witness, it, it comes from words plus actions plus the Holy Spirit working together. Words and action and the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you think about it, if we are offering words, bearing witness to how great Jesus is, but our life doesn't back that up, if our life doesn't look at all like Jesus, uh, there's no power in that. The words are empty and they're rejected. Uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, I think there's many of us who would much rather just try to live a Jesus-looking life and never say anything to anybody and not stir up any trouble at all in that way, and hopefully people will just catch on. They'll look at our life and go, wow, something Jesus-like is happening there. In reality, we have to name what people are seeing. The words and the actions have to come together. It has to be both. And then always in that, uh, really, it's, it is the power of the Holy Spirit working through us and working in the heart of the person on the other end of that that causes spiritual change to happen. Nothing happens apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's... Um, uh, Here's a fun story. This is from last Sunday. So, uh, so last Sunday afternoon, after taco time, and you know we got everything cleaned up and headed out of here, uh, went home and had and uh, you know got settled, and then went out to Trader Joe's to go shopping. This is my custom on Sunday afternoons. It's when we uh, when we do our shopping for the week. And and last Sunday it was just me. Sam was doing something else. Uh, but I'm in the parking lot at Trader Joe's. And um, it was just kind of feeling this nudge from the Holy Spirit, you know, that, that you're going to be talking to somebody today in Trader Joe's. And we've talked about this. This kind of happens from time to time. And so, you know, I've kind of recognized, okay, I think God's doing something. I took him in and prayed that God would give me eyes to see what was going on and the right words to use and whatever. So did that, get my shopping cart, cruising to Trader Joe's, and I'm doing my thing and just kind of waiting for something to happen. And I'm in the cheese aisle, lingering in the cheese aisle, because, you know, Sunday night, wine and cheese. So I'm looking over the cheeses and saying, okay, what's, what's it going to be? And this voice behind me says, Tim? And I turn around, and, and it's, it's this dude that I hadn't seen in 20 years. Uh, except for, I saw him three days earlier. I found myself in his place of business and ran into him there, and we connected for a brief moment, but, you know, 20 years plus three days. And he looks at me kind of funny, and he says, he says, this is really weird, that after not seeing you for 20 years, I'd see you twice in three days. And, uh, and I said to him, you know, I find that usually when that happens, it means God's doing something. And then I just kind of shut up, and I stood there next to the cheese. 
And there was a long pause while I could see the wheels turning and he was kind of deciding what to say next. And finally he said, my wife left me. And, um, and proceeded to tell me about the season that he was in and what it looked like, what it felt like. And we had this really beautiful God moment in the cheese aisle in Trader Joe's where I was able to receive his pain and was able to bear witness to who Jesus is and talk a little bit about maybe what God's doing in him in this moment. Witness. Mission. Friends, it is at the heart of what Jesus calls us to as his disciples. But it's also, and don't miss this part, it's also part of what makes fellowship, spiritual community, unique. And to the extent that you and I are practicing this, that we're living into this, it not only blesses the person that's in front of you, it does something to enrich the entire church, the entire fellowship of believers. You know, I think, I look back at, at our last few years of pandemic, if, if there's one thing that I would do differently over these last three years, it would be to keep us more focused on mission, keep us facing outward more than we have. Uh, you know, when pandemic hit, um, we were very focused on caring for each other, getting each other through it, and this was good and vitally important, but I, I wish we had diverted just 10% of our energies into staying more outward focused too. Praying for our unsaved friends. Praying for Christians who are seeing falling away from the church. Being inviters and includers and bringers. It's so important. It's so important. And we need to lean into that in fresh ways, friends. We need to make sure that we are ministering well to those around us and not just focused on one another inside these four walls. And, and listen, as for the earlier church, for us this does come with difficulty, right? And I, I kind of hate using the word persecution when we talk about the church in America, so we'll make it like persecution with a, a lowercase p. Um, but it's, it's part of what we need to talk about in this. You know, there is a cost that comes with bearing witness to Christ. If, if you hang around with more left-leaning people, man, it is, it is really difficult. If, if you ever wonder about this, read through the comment section sometimes in, in the New York Times. Uh, the vitriol towards Christians is unbelievable. And the left is becoming so secular that it's very difficult to be a Christian in that space. And the temptation is just to hide or to alter Christianity enough that maybe you'll sound like you fit in. Uh, similarly, if you hang out with people who live a little more on the right-hand side of the spectrum, well, on the surface, there's a broader acceptance of those who are Christian, but it's kind of a narrow lane, right? If you're talking about abortion and sexual sin, everybody's your friend. If you start talking about passages in the Bible that tell us how to treat the poor and the immigrant and care for the earth, you might find your friend group growing smaller, right? And, and for students, I mean, I'm shocked how difficult it is for high school students to be Christian these days. Become an absolute pariah, uh, proclaiming yourself a Christian on a high school campus today. There is a cost. That is real. And that's part of why we need each other. 
We need to be part of a fellowship to be faithful in this aspect of witness. Uh, One more mark. One more mark of fellowship. It's grace. It's grace. Verse 33. It says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. God's grace was at work. And what does it look like when a community is marked by grace? Well, one example, of course, in this text, and we talked about already, is, is just that sharing, the financial sacrifice. That there were no needy people among them. It's a beautiful picture. But the New Testament talks about more than that. And we might kind of sum it up this way, that when God's grace permeates a community of people, we see when the grace of God is at work that people are made whole. That can be a financial need where somebody is made whole, but it goes beyond that too. In grace, there is a generosity of spirit that always gives a person more than what they deserve. Sometimes grace looks like mercy. You've sinned, you've blown it, you know it, you need to know that you still belong. And sometimes grace means you as that offended person going to that person and saying, hey, can we be okay? Can we continue on together? Sometimes grace looks like permission to be imperfect, to be in process. Uh, Not condoning somebody's sin, but saying to them, I'm going to walk with you while you work this out. Because we're all a bit imperfect. We're all working this out. Sometimes grace just doesn't reject. It says, we can still do this together, even though we're a bit messy. Sometimes grace looks like entering somebody else's pain, saying, what hurts you hurts me too. And I'm going to stand with you in the midst of this, and I'm going to pray for you in the midst of this, and I'm going to weep with you in the midst of this. And a graceful fellowship does that. Uh, the comedian George Carlin, you guys still remember him? Um, around a while ago, but uh, he had a great bit where he talks about the difference between uh, football and baseball. He's clearly a baseball guy, and he's kind of making his case for baseball, but he, uh, he says, you want to know how these two activities are different? Look at how they score points and the language that goes into that. So in football, he says, football is a violent encounter. Right? You attack the enemy by throwing bombs. You engage in ground attack. You soften up the other side's defense until you can make it into their end zone. That's how you score points. This is in baseball. When you score points in baseball, there's no battle. You just come home. That's how you win in baseball. In Christianity, in Christ's church, You win by coming home. That's grace. It's a father who loves us. And no matter how bad you've blown it or how many times you've blown it, his eyes are on the horizon looking for his children to come home. The more that we practice this with one another, the richer, the deeper, the fuller our fellowship becomes. Let's pray together.